Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not A Genre, the interview edition. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Music Is Not A Genre is every week I take uh, an album or a musical concept, and I talk about it at length. I give details and facts and opinions, and I throw in some other interesting things, and I connect all of that to my music, to other music, and to other things in the world. Uh, Thanks to everyone who uh, has subscribed and uh, clicked and, and, and shared and posted and commented especially i love your comments and to all my patreon supporters and all that good stuff um and if you're tuning into this particular edition then you probably know that this is part two of my two-part interview with the legendary nikki dimatio <laughs> uh, um couple spoilers so if you haven't seen part one stop watching right now and go back and watch part <laughs> one. this is my father and um, next to him somewhere uh, off camera is my mother. And what you're actually seeing is my old bedroom, a bedroom that uh, I, was, I, I had been in from 1973 to, uh, you know, 90, 92 off and on. And then yeah, even right. a little bit after that here and there, because you know how life goes. So you uh, enjoy the nautical theme. And, <laughs> um, and so to catch everybody up, Part one, we talked about, among other things, uh, how you started in music, uh, which basically was uh, pretty much from birth in 1941. Uh, Some early uh, developmental things as far as you singing and learning to sing and singing in public and doing um, the Children's Hour and Arthur Godfrey and doing the jazz standard kind of music and then getting into rock and roll music uh, through the 60s. Um, with your rock and roll tours and all of the the singles that you cut and the big uh, the jazz album that you cut, uh, going to college, uh, meeting meeting mom and getting married, and taking us up into uh, the late '60s and eventually transitioning into a life uh, playing piano and singing. Um, the that period there in the late '60s was at least for you personally, another kind of a transitional thing, partly because you, you got married, you started having children. Um, um, you know, first question, hard hitting journalist, would you, um, I'd like to think that, uh, you attribute the complete change in, in your career to, um, having to be a father. And now you had just had to give up everything and it's all my fault. Is that right? (laughs) Boy, that's that's not it's not prescient. That's no, not, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not prescient. Uh, yeah. No, what happened? Well, of course, we married in uh, April of '67. 
you come along in uh, in November of of '68, and uh, in '69 I was booked at a as a stand-up singer. I was booked at a place in uh, Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. I was the uh, naturally the featured singer. There was a band behind me uh, called the Arrangement. Uh, after after the show, uh, they asked me if I wanted to join them, and I did for I did for about. Uh, a uh, year, maybe a year, year and a half. We went to a ski lodge. You got your first haircut up there at a ski lodge in, uh, in New England somewhere. And uh, it was, it was fun. It was great, great working with these guys. And, uh, but I, I was a solo performer from get, from the get go. And uh, I went back to being a solo performer uh, in, uh, I guess, late 69. What kind of uh, music did you guys do? Uh, we did contemporary actually. We're doing uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Uh, we did uh, there was one specific song that uh, your mom always liked to call, And When I Die, mm-hmm. I'm not scared of dying and I don't really care. That's actually a Laura Nero song that Blood, Sweat, and Tears it, covered. Oh, okay, yeah, that they I prefer their version and that's another podcast i did covers versus originals challenge sometimes the covers are better than the originals i think yeah how about that you know a lot of the get take anything away from laura nero but that blood sweat and tears version well i wouldn't take anything away from the the beatles but i i always liked the mamas and the papas version of i call your name that was on my list. Yes. Was and it I really? Agree. Yeah. yeah anyway, this, there's so they reinvented it. it and still <laughs> held true to the original spirit. That's what yeah, I like. Ab- absolutely yeah. great. Yeah. So, so anyway, I was with the, left the arrangement and then uh, to get a call from an agent, Billy Austin in Atlantic City. Uh, he said that uh, they, there was a club that wanted to hire me. And, and that was the Pal Joey's I mentioned, where I worked with, uh, there was a, band and then he fired the band and that's when i started playing the piano what kind of so what kind of music was that the band was playing we were doing mostly standard uh, american songbook type stuff so here you are you were in one band doing contemporary music yeah which you at that point did have some professional experience in with all the singles you cut and stuff like that and the rock and roll tour and then you you jump to this other band briefly who's doing the jazz standards, which, as we know, you had a bunch of experience in as well. And right at that moment, this band gets fired. Fire. And, and, and so you go t- take over uh, and tell everybody what happened. Yeah, well, Joey, wonder, he was a wonderful guy. You know, he's, again, a former fighter who started the club. And uh, it was a fairly popular sh- uh, place, pal Joey's. And uh, he said, OK, play the piano. And I started. And again, uh, the I, I got a write-up on in Philadelphia Magazine. Uh, Gaten Fonzie, Bernie McCormick were the reporters doing this kind of expose of of Atlantic City bars, and uh, he just gave me this wonderful, glowing re- review. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, people started flocking in to see me, and uh, and well, a guy, one guy, wanted to be my manager. Uh, and then from there, I got uh, I went to a, an agent in Philadelphia called Eddie Suez, a legend, legend in the Philadelphia area, and he booked me into uh, 
place called the 5100 Club on 51st and City Line Avenue. Uh, it was near, uh, actually near St. Joe's College. Hmm. But I, I was there and that, that started, kind of started things going for me in the Philadelphia area. Going to playing clubs. It was there that uh, these guys from the band Chicago basically asked me to join. Uh, I know you and your brother Dave. I probably think I'm nuts, you know. I, I, I just wasn't into traveling, and I'd want to travel. I said I have a family, and uh, I'll give you an example of that. When uh, another agent who started booking me, uh, Jerry, said I got a gig for you in Massachusetts at a Holiday Inn for the summer. And by that time, your your brother was born as well. And uh, I, I said, that's great. We'll take the family up there. He said, no, no, it's not a family type thing. I said, Jerry, can I make a living doing what I do locally? He said, sure. I said, well, what do I want to go to Massachusetts at a holiday inn for the summer and leave my family? Why should I do that? Yeah. Okay. That's it kind of, it set the stage for the rest of my life is what it did. Uh, it got the point across that family was number one. You know, when you go back to Tony Mambo way back, he didn't want me to be dating and stuff. Why? Because your focus is split. Okay. The irony of it is that he was probably right. I met Julie, your mom, and fell in love and family became more important to me than becoming a big star. And that's. Well, this is interesting to me because um, it's something. And uh, you know, those of you who watched part one and or, or who know me or him know that we've also done some acting here and there. Right. And in the, we're skipping ahead just for the purpose of this point. In the 90s, we took a class together. Yeah. Uh, a guy Barth. named John Barth in Philly. Right. <laughs> and he was an old school dude, an old school dude from, yeah. you know, old entertainment and all. Fun class, interesting. I don't know, you know, we got out of it other than some uh, very dated tapes that we should watch at some point. Wait, I'll, I'll tell you also, yeah. one, yeah, let, me, let me interrupt. We got yeah. the five Ps. We got the five Ps from that class. Okay. Proper preparation prevents poor performance. Oh, that's where, yeah, I always liked that. Yeah. Well, and he had a song every day and every way. I'm getting better and better. Oh, yeah. but, but one of the things he said was something that you were repeating, which is you can't have both, right? And so at the time, I was, I, I didn't have a family yet, but I was thinking about it and, and certainly planning on it, you know, and shortly thereafter, you know, it started happening. But my, you know, I, I'm a kind of person who, when I, when I want to not just know something, but feel better about something, I do research because the unknown is the thing that's the most fearful. So once you know, whatever it is you were afraid of is, is even if you thought, oh, if I know this, it's going to be worse. It's never worse. The more, you know, the better off you are. And so I, did my research and found that there were many, many people in the entertainment industry who have had both, 
you know, who've had long-term relationships and families and careers and what, and I, you know, I don't want to go into what I decided then or how anything happened, but what I always, you know, found interesting was that that's not something that was ever promoted or, you know, throughout the, the, the history of entertainment, especially in the 20th century, everyone was forced to make a choice. You either had to be maniacally devoted to your career or settle, quote unquote, and have a family. And in one way, you were discouraged from, you know, from doing both, from having the kind of, you know, higher profile elements of your career because, because you know, as you say, family was the most important thing to you. And, and so you were given this false choice in my book. And because there was really no other way to do it, especially with people that, you know, you had to work with back then, you went this direction. But what happened was that you created a new thing, you know, not maybe not new to the world, but new to you, which, like you said, enabled you to have your, your version of a career, which we're going to get into, and I'll explain to people why that's so important, not just to me, but to any working musician out there, and a family at the same time, and be successful at both. Amen. I like that. And that, so you you spent your life disproving that old, you know, that adage that you couldn't, you can't have it both ways. You can't have both. Yeah, I mean, you know, so so I'm not a big star. But again, we the people that I've touched locally on a, a year by year basis and place by place that I've worked, all the places I've worked over these many years, that has become of paramount importance from the point of view of a career. Uh, where the family's concerned, it's interesting. I was working five nights a week for for quite a while, and I didn't. I didn't, I didn't want to leave you guys. It was a, almost, it was like a chore to get into the car, to leave you guys. To, now, once I got where I was working and once I started singing, the singing, the music then became the main reason for my existence. I always say the song that I'm singing is, is the only reason for me to exist at that particular point. And it, I just felt that as a, I don't know why I felt that, but I felt it. And there it is. I had it's incredible. Yeah. No regrets from that point of view, uh, except uh, that had I become quote unquote, a bigger star made a lot of money. I could certainly be of, of more uh, help to you, to your brother, to other, other family members, but it is what it is. And I still considered myself the most blessed person I know. Which is, you know, most important <laughs> thing for anybody is to be able to say that about yourself and your life, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're going to get into the next phase of all this for so many good reasons, but just to kind of tie up the previous period and to add to what you said, your impact has never 
been just local, you know, and partly that's because of the things you did earlier in your career. For example, the connections in South America, uh, I ran into, uh, I I see your stuff online all the time from people all over the world and ran into somebody from uh, Hungary, coincidentally, (laughs) says that that she's heard your music there frequently. Uh, A dude in Belgium has his own radio show who plays your music on his uncertain, you know, Uh, formats when he's when he's you know uh putting his playlist together so you know or uh i did a whole thing uh way back on um a type of music called northern soul which was in particular popular in britain and your song uh from the early 70s uh, which is where we are in your history uh i'll i'll be there you're right um, was uh marked as one of the fairly well-known Northern soul songs, uh, you know, in certain areas of people who really enjoy that music. And so um, I, I think that it might be possible. I think you said this earlier in the interview of the last uh, session, but we all, we always underestimate the impact that we have and we underestimate the, uh, the connection that we're able to forge and the reach that we have. And I think that, whether it's from earlier in your career or from the, the extremely extensive and successful, you know, next phase of your career, that impact is always beyond local. Oh, no question. I, I'm reminded of George Bailey. Uh-huh. Those of you who are, I'm sure, familiar with the George Bailey syndrome. Nothing worked in his life the way he actually wanted it to. George Bailey wanted to become this, you know, incredible architect and building bridges and traveling all over the world. Uh -uh. He never left Bedford Falls and still managed to do the will of the father. George Bailey. So, yeah. And what's interesting to me about that is that when he went through his, you know, fever dream and the what would life be like without his existence. When he came back to his life, the only thing that had changed was him. His life was still whatever it was. And it was him finding something within himself to appreciate what he had there. You know, and who's to say what happened after that? Because that's where the story ends. Yeah, it is. Now, what he decided, did he decide to travel or whatever? And that's totally fine. But I think whether he did or not is not the important thing. The important thing is he found value in himself and his life and in the here and now and not in what might be. Right. Within the circle that, that he found himself in. Yeah. Which is where we all are. We all We all find ourselves in a in a in a circle with surrounded by people and it's that's that's where we can do where we're supposed to be doing the most the most good yes and that and that ripples has a ripple effect and all of that and what's interesting to me is that so many you know self-help books and courses and things that you you know encounter these days um one of the main tenets of all of that is to find, to, like I said, find value in yourself now to not think that you need to be some other thing. Whatever you are now is what you is, is already has value and can, whatever it is you want to achieve 
it starts here and you and you that 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 philosophy or mindset of feeling like you're already a success based on where you are whatever else happens after that is based on choice and circumstance and motivation but it doesn't it doesn't mean that you're waiting to be a success or you're waiting to be a complete person or or any of that stuff not at all yeah. uh i've had many thank the Lord, many compliments in my career. Uh, now that I'm singing in church on a regular basis, uh, I, people would say, you, you, you enhance the mass for me. And I'm one of the best, one of the best compliments I've had is from a deacon uh, who said, when you sing, I feel the Holy Spirit come upon me. Oh, I said, whoa. I've had a lot of compliments. That's huge. That's that is huge. Yeah. Yeah. But again, because what we're doing affects others, and it gets through to others. Whatever we do it. Yes. And that that brings us back to our point in our in in our chronology here. The you that I know from firsthand experience is the nightclub you. Is the you who you know. Uh, primarily played piano every now and then acoustic guitar who eventually incorporated a drum machine uh, when, when that became a thing that you could do and was this self-sufficient performer who, despite any potential, you know, guest instrumentalists or vocalists ran the show from beginning to end for several hours a night, several nights a week, several weeks a year, you know, on and on and on. And the thing I wanted to point out to to people that I think, again, goes, the importance goes beyond, you know, just the two of us or you is that, um, well, it's, it's, there's kind of two points in this egg. One is that anybody who was able to make any kind of living doing the thing that they love, that they were meant to do or believe they were meant to do is a success. And this is a case of you think about the ways in which people make a living and make money and support a family. It's not very many of those people are able to do it solely. And I mean, solely from performing. Uh, the, The economy has morphed in the last 50 years to, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, if you're comparing, you know, 2021 dollars to 1970 dollars or whatever, things in many ways economically are much worse now than they were then. There are guys out there, women, there are duos, there are bands who are busting their asses uh, doing either originals or covers and performing all the time and still aren't able to make enough money to make a living. And that's the majority of people, actors as well, voiceover artists, uh, you know, even, I mean, whatever, writers, painters, whatever it is, the, the way the economy has shifted over the last several decades has made it nearly impossible for the average person in the arts to, to do what you did. And so it's almost become this, you know, Valhalla in, in, you know, in, in my life to look back and say, no, I didn't need to get a job working at the, you know, the freaking zoo or teaching or whatever else it was. All, all I need to do is just do what I love and do it well. And I'm going to make a living at it. And, and, you know, because that's what you did for decades. 
<laughs> my choice was a lot easier than yours. Uh, I I sing cover songs, and uh, you know I, I I trade on the popularity of the songs themselves and the way I can do them and have done them. Uh, your choice to do nothing but originals, primarily originals, uh, that to me is more heroic from that point of view. I mean, good grief. It's much more difficult to make a living that way. Uh, and then again, as you say, the times have changed, places have changed, tastes have changed. I could work five nights a week in one room, one room for two and a half years. I could work four nights a week in one room for six years. That doesn't happen anymore. It's like I get a chance to woodshed, if you're familiar with that phrase, uh, all this time learning new songs, delivering the material, making new fans, as the old saying goes, one fan at a time. I built, built that base. And I feel privileged to be able to do that. And as you say, yeah, to, to pay the bills. To so make you're, talking about a, you're talking about a, essentially a steady full-time job for yeah. however many years in the same place. These days, they call that a residency, and it lasts <laughs> about a month. And, you know, and that is considered an, a huge achievement. Long time, yeah. Right. You know, unless you're unless you're so well known or so established in one place, you know, like there's a place that Catherine worked where it was the same dude playing all the time. You know, I'm there were others, but like you have that place that's your home and whatever. But that's so rare now that it yeah. it really is this you know several I guess decade moment in time and. Yeah you know, the world moves on and technology moves on and, and stuff. It's not about people's tastes at all because people have a taste for all kinds of music still to this day. It's yes. the way in which it's consumed, how owners and venues program their music weekly and what they expect to get out of the performer uh, as opposed to what the performer expects to get out of the job. So, you know. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot in there. That's a whole different discussion. But it's you know totally. It's yeah because uh, uh, again, to be able to stay in one room for you know leave my equipment, leave my equipment there, mm -hmm. and twice a year take three weeks off as a vacation, and somebody else will come in and and, and fill in for me for three weeks, twice a year. Yeah, uh, that's unheard of today. As you say, gee, if you're in a place for a month, that's what? <laughs> Come on. Like I say, I spent I spent over two years at the William Penn Inn in Pennsylvania and six years at the Montgomery Inn in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. That's again, that's unheard of. I I you know, I could raise a family, I could pay the mortgage, I could pay the bills. It, it it's uh, again Cars, I say, and vacations and all oh, that. Yeah, it's, right. Vacations. I mean, my way was a whole lot, a whole lot easier than what you've decided to do. And that's amazing what you. Well, know. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I think that's true in general. I think I always considered covers to be more sustainable, certainly, and a good and a much easier way to achieve short term success. Right. And that 
you know, business wise, uh, doing your own music and owning your own music and playing it is is usually better in in the long term. You see results, but either way, there there are people out there doing covers and still not making a living. So it's it you know yes it's harder but it's just it's just not like you said it's not the same as it was which makes me so fascinated you know more and more um about that whole period which we'll go back to so you start in 70 and you were playing uh, like nightclubs and bars and restaurants and all of that stuff uh in New Jersey and in the you know Philadelphia area Sure. And I guess down the shore as well. For yeah, mostly, yeah, mostly uh, Jersey and Pennsylvania. Yeah, didn't do okay. Yeah, down the shore. Right. Okay. So and then uh, that that so that was where uh, I grew up learning the most about music. Yeah, and partly because uh, as a very small child, um, when mom would want to go to see you, she would take me and eventually Dave, my brother. Sure. Um, and we would hang out and watch the show and we're at whatever club you were playing in till the yeah. wee hours of the morning, yeah. you know, even as children, and which is, if, you know, an amazing experience, you know, and, and so great that I did it hundreds of times and, and, and probably more. Um, but musically, it goes back to what I was saying about that period at the turn of the decade for you, which is you go, you come out of one band doing contemporary, you go into another band doing jazz standards. They both, they both, you know, they, they both end for their different reasons. And then you go into doing your own stuff. And as you said, in the previous portion of the interview, what you do in, and, and most of it from that point was self-taught is you don't just sing as a jazz artist. You don't just sing as a, what I would call like a light rock and roll artist. You sing pretty much any style that, that people could think of in, in include, including, you know, uh, music from different cultures and in different languages and things like that. And so what I grew up with was this idea that I've mentioned in other podcasts that the most important thing is not, what kind of music something is it's the song it's the music itself it's the how good is that song how good is the how how and are you doing justice to it in the way that you do it you are not somebody who says i'm going to create uh, an environment where i sound exactly like the recording oh right yeah you take it you make it your own and yet somehow also still maintain a strong connection to the spirit of the original and exactly. some closer to other you know closer to than others as far as style but anybody who knows my music and especially the covers that i've recorded knows that my big thing with is a cover good or not is don't try to recreate what exists take it and make it your own and geez where do you think i got that from you know from the years and, and decades you know watching you perform and such an eclectic, you know, a bunch of music, not just in your shows, but even when we would go home and listen to the, you know, turntable and you'd have stacks of records, there would be Latin music and jazz music and rock music and, you know, and, 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 and you know, vocal music and all of that stuff. It's, it's a great way to live and to grow up to, to understand that there is 
more to music and more to the world than just your one narrow point of view. Uh, no doubt about it. I, mean, I, I come back to acting. I come back to acting. Uh, it's so important to act the message of the song. Each, each song to me is like a, a, a play, beginning, middle, end. And uh, uh, this was one song I'm, I've been obsessed with for the past uh, few uh, weeks. It's, it was written in 1944 by Sammy Kahn, Axel Stordahl, and Paul Weston uh, called I Should Care. Uh, became a, a, a Sinatra hit. And uh, the reason was, was that a fan of mine, Frank Cannon, rest his soul, wonderful guy, loved the song. And I learned it for him back then. I've since forgotten a bit of it, but it's 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 a it's just a beautiful little gem of a song. I should I should care. I should go about weeping. I should care. I should go without sleeping. And so, but anyway, uh, the uh, another thing I act is if I were a rich man from Fiddler on the Roof. I learned it in 66 uh, and the idea is to become, become what you're singing about. You want to fight a tiger, become a tiger. That's a martial arts thing, but to become the person in the song, no matter what it is, it, again, it might be something you picked a fine time to leave me Lucille mm. Four hungry children and a crop in the field. And he said, become that uh, it took me so long to learn that I, mean, <laughs> I always appreciate performers and and artists and bands who are able to morph what they do based on the song that they're doing and most of these people i'm talking about aren't even doing covers but whether or not it's a cover the ability to uh bust out of you know quote unquote how you think you should sing because that's your identity as a singer Oh. is is something that let's say uh you know a paul mccartney or david bowie or prince just completely shot out of the window you <laughs> know? and 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 even other people there's a guy uh you know rest his soul scott wyland the uh, the lead singer of the band stone temple pilots who started oh. singing in one way like heavy grunge and then he did a john lennon thing and then he's done this stuff and the more his career went on, the more I realized this is a singer who loves singing. Uh, Lady Gaga's done it, where she's sung in so many different styles. Um, uh, Catherine's a fan of Celine Dion, and she's you know she tells me all the wow. time she's been able to sing so many different kinds of music and things like that. And to me, it's not that somebody who sticks to one style is is not somebody I respect because there are plenty of bands and artists who that's what they do. They do it so well. Why would they do anything else? But I've always found more of a connection to and an excitement, uh, you know, for artists who are able to morph themselves that way, uh, including, including the band Chicago, who you mentioned, who I found, <laughs> found uh, I did a whole podcast on them and how uh, like my previous one of my podcasts about the Bee Gees and how you think you know them because you know the d disco or you know their oh, right. you know you know their psychedelic pop hits or whatever from the sixties. No, they were so much more than that and morphed in so many ways. And so did Chicago, and so did all the people I just mentioned, and and you know, and so did you. Sure. And that's what I you know again. That's what I grew up with. 
Yeah. Well, I doing what I did for so many different people, I found it necessary to to be able to to do that, as you call it, morphing uh, in the clubs. You know, so, so one person might like that, one person might like something else, one person might like that. Then to to make it all credible, I want to make it credible to the, my listeners, but it's first got to become credible to me. I have to believe. That's great. That's great. If I can be, if I can make it credible to me, I can make it credible to you. Well, and that's funny. That brings up two, two thoughts. Um, one is it, it was years, years before I heard the original cast recording of Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> like many, many decades, let's say decades. And it was, I guess, Topol was it? Zero Mostel. Zero Mostel, right? He was yeah, the Topol did he did the movie. Topol yeah, okay. the movie. So Great Zero job. Mostel, right? I think I probably heard both versions. Sure. And I listened to them, and those are veteran people, amazing. You know, like the, yeah. the role wouldn't really exist without them and all that stuff. But my first impression was, man, they need to get into this more. <laughs> and the whole reason was because you created a basically a, a stage. It's like a proscenium popped up around you or whatever when you did that song. Now, I mean, other songs too, but in particular in this song where I was like, you were the character, you, you know, you, you didn't, you didn't uh, need to feel like you needed to adhere to a certain tempo. You know, you had your rubato here and there and the stops and starts and just, you created a performance out of a song. That's exactly yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, you just actually described it quite beautifully. Thank you. <laughs> well, and, and, and part of the reason is because, like you said, as, as from that acting point of view, which funny enough, an, an acting teacher I had in the uh, early O's, you know, saw me perform at CBGB's once and said, um, with this one particular song that's a song about being angry, he's like, I want to see you angrier. And that moment, changed the way I did music after that because uh -oh. it helped me see that even in my brain feeling like I'm eclectic and doing such and such I was still adhering to a certain way of singing in some ways that wasn't allowing me to be more expressive in songs that needed that yeah you know? yeah sure uh, but just anecdotally the second thing that 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 this conversation brought up was that uh for some reason I stumbled on some information about Mae West oh, and found out that she had a recording career through the 1970s. Oh, for crying out loud. And that in her 70s, she released two albums of rock and roll covers. No. And it's, oh, you know, hit or miss. I mean, I, I look, she's an amazing person and I admire her for all the you know, things that she did and and all and she's more of a talk singer any anyway especially at that point but for her to make that attempt to morph her own you know <laughs> style into that is just to me that's you know that's courage you know and that's those are the kind of artists that i gravitate towards that's beautiful uh, yeah you should look it out it's on the, yeah, youtube i think but uh so you know not to make this a three-part interview, um, we're, we're here in the 70s and you're establishing yourself as this local performer in the clubs 
and you're kicking ass and making a living and you now have two kids. And uh, this continues, just so people know, for many more decades uh, through all of my childhood and into, you know, my young adulthood even. And um, again, like I said, making a living uh, anywhere from four to six nights a week, There, you know, uh, in certain clubs. There was a period where you did six nights, I remember, that didn't last very long, but it was... uh, that's crazy. Um, but, uh, and yes, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because all of that is very significant, but a couple of things happened in the mid seventies that I, I, I think people will want to know about. One is that in 1976, you released a solo, uh, um, album of originals, <laughs> you know, with your name was the title was your name. And it's not that you hadn't, you know, you recorded an original before and whatever, and, and, you know, way back and you had written songs and stuff like that, but this was a thing that you did. And then to put a pin in it, because I want to, these are the two things I want to talk about. The following year, you joined karate. So you're in, you know, you're in the prime, you're, 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 you know, you're doing your living and everything's kind of, you know, solid and, going well, what was it that compelled you to take on this, uh, pro- this album of original music? Yeah, well, uh, in the 73, I was working a place called Miss Jean's Crossroads Tavern uh, near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And uh, two wonderful people came in, Joyce and Axel Schultz, and sitting at the piano bar and listening to me. And I, I, I was convinced that Axel hated my guts. Well, it turned out he didn't. And he and his wife, Joyce, backed me in a record, a record I recorded in New York called, uh, uh, was it uh, Heading for New York City? How ironic is that? That's 74? Yeah, I was about 74 when that happened. Yeah. 75. And uh, the people that were behind it, uh, uh, Joyce and I spent the money, but the people that recorded it decided to change my name to Nikki LaSalle at that time, figuring, well, DiMatteo had his run. Let's give him a new name. Well, nothing much happened to that song. Uh, and in fact, uh, Joyce and X were ripped off by some un scrupulous but anyway the money they got back in taxes as a tax refund they reinvested in this Nicky DiMatteo album eponymous where I recorded uh, nothing but uh, original things and that's how that album came about and uh, Joyce sent an album to Dinah Shore in, in LA and Darn if she didn't sing a couple of my songs. I never got royalties because somebody failed to to register what they call a mechanical copyright. Right. Uh, I don't know what. Yeah. yeah, I had so anyway, I never got royalties, but Dinah Shore did sing a couple of my uh, compositions. Do you, which songs were they? Do you remember? Yeah, she sang one called Hey Hey, I th- Hey Hey, I th-. and then mm-hmm. the other one was uh um, I get uh, try to look on the bright side if bright you want to ease your troubled mind. Does anybody have a, 
uh, Tapas uh, show that she did this on? Or no, I happen to see it in the TV guide of all ah. that. You know, Dinah Shore singing the Hey Hey song. Wow! And I, wrote, I wrote the song based on Fonzie. Hey! Oh no way! Yeah! yeah. Hey! Yeah. I, Not I, an Italian, by the way, fellas. Uh, people, yeah. Even though he played <laughs> one very well. But, um, but you, so I want anybody out there, uh, I'll probably do it anyway, but I want some of you out there, go look up this, Dinah Shore and those two songs, Hey, Hey, and Look on the Bright Side, and see if you can find a recording of it. Even if it's just audio. I would love to hear it. Oh, I would too. Uh, it would be so great. Um, and then, so that that solo album... I remember that was my first studio experience was being okay. in the studio at times. Uh, I remember a point in a song called reincarnation when, uh, and this is, I think this is why I ended up wanting to get into production or arrangement of songs was this, this one moment where the people in the studio were talking about whether the uh, end vocal should remain at the high tonic or, or step down, uh, you know, chromatically. I remember that. And I, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily, I don't think I spoke much, but I, I remember thinking in my head, and I don't know if I ever said it out loud, why don't you do both? And somebody else in that place said the same thing because that's how the recording ended up ending. You're right. And that thought to me has resonated with me for years because it was my, you know, entry into thinking about the recording of a song isn't just about the integrity of the original material. And it isn't just about how it's performed. Those are very essential, both of them, but it's also about how it's produced. Okay. Are you, is the production, um, either supporting the content and the meaning of the song and or enhancing it in some way. And I think yeah. that's where it started for me, was in that studio experience. Yeah. And the guy who started it was Tony Luisi. He's the, he's the guy who arranged all the songs. Wow. Tony Lewis, L-U-I-S, or L-U-I-S-I is his original. His original. Mm. He's the one... I recorded that first album with 1961. He uh, he and his brother John had a recording studio called Sound Plus in Philadelphia. But that Tony Luisi's arrangements were then something that inspired you. It's amazing how we all touch each other. I go I keep going back to Clarence Oddbody <laughs> you know, from the George Bailey. We all touch each other's yeah, lives, right? So, so connections, yeah. And oh, oh there's no that's something you and Catherine talked about in the interview. Wonderful connections and passion. Well, she was joking about that. My, you know, whole thing here, you know, when I when I sign off is always music, conversation, connection. And the funny thing is about that. It's a conversation we had a couple of years before I even started doing you know, <laughs> video podcasts. Wow. And it was this weird revelation of one of the only posters that I ever wanted to have on my wall in college was this old E.M. Forster quote, only connect. And even though the full quote has nothing, has, doesn't have as much to do with that as you think, everyone was high on that quote back then. 
And it made such an impression on me because I thought, well, at the you know age of my late teens, I was like, well, yeah. I now, now I know the answer to life. I know the meaning of life is <laughs> just to connect. And then I love that. I did you know lost that or you know did it did it in some ways and didn't do it in so many ways. And then you know with Catherine and the whole thing about you know I must have had that conversation again, and she made the point. Well, if you want to connect, then freaking connect. You know, figure out ways to do that. And and I realized through that conversation and through doing it that that really is, I think, really the whole point of everything is is to find ways to connect, whether it's intellectually or emotionally or physically or however it is. And, and ironically, we're in a, a situation now with this pandemic where the connections are difficult to uh, to, to make unless it's like this uh, technologically. And thank God for the technology where we can do this. There's a song that Catherine and I wrote together. It's the first song. And the entire song is about how do you figure out how to connect when you're not together? Is that and, the one you guys are going to do? Yeah. So as of this recording, the song's already out uh, when I've released okay. this, you know, okay. and hopefully people are hearing it. I don't know when we're going to record an actual version of it. But Catherine and I, on uh, February 12th and 14th, we debuted this song live virtually wow uh, and that's what the song is about that's what the really what a lot of the show is about it's about love and connection um which uh leads me somehow to the next point <laughs> which is in 77 you made another very kind of seminal decision which was to uh join karate yeah and you are now people uh, uh people at home will know uh, an eighth dan black belt uh, having, in Korean yeah. Karate Tung Soo Do. Right. Having, yeah. Dominic Jacoby has been my instructor all these years. Uh, he's and he's become like a brother in a, in a real in a, in a real sense. But anyway, people would say, "How did you get interested in karate?" And uh, you remember back in uh, well, maybe you won't. You were a little young back in '72. There was a te- television show called uh, called Kung Fu. Mm-hmm. David Carradine. That's it. David Carradine. Uh, Always loved the show. Carradine, the character of Kwai Chang Kane, reminding, uh, was very Christ-like as far as I was concerned. He was was a man of peace, of love, and of tremendous power, who hesitated to use that power unless it was absolutely necessary. At one point during during the run of the show, he was forced to kill someone who was a very skilled ninja out to kill him. And he was devastated to have to take a life. But that character inspired me to, uh, to join karate. And in 77, I did. And, uh, I was 36 back then. And uh, it's been part of our life. You and your brother and your mom. Also, I mean, you got to second degree black belt and your brother eventually got the fourth your mom uh, was almost a red belt yeah so, yeah it became a family thing and uh yeah and i and i feel like uh, a lot of elements of my ability to perform and such certainly came from watching you but the confidence to uh, inhabit my body and be myself whatever that self is 
some of that came from karate as well. And it was a, it was a fortunate thing that this kind of karate, um, anybody, anybody who knows anything about the karate kid series and movies and shows and all that stuff knows that the basic premise philosophically is that there's more than one kind of martial art and that it's often a battle between the kind that believes that, you know, war and conflict is always necessary and the kind that believes that you're looking for uh, peace and centering and, and connect, connection even, and, and to use your strength as the Kung Fu character did to avoid conflict at all costs. And I'm, we were lucky enough to have found, you know, that or you to have found that karate that believed in that second way. Oh, no question. Uh, uh, Grandmaster Huang Qi, uh, who founded our modern day style of Tungsudo, who I mean, the, the actual style itself goes back a couple of thousand years to uh, Korea, to China. But Grandmaster Wang Qi in his book said the primary objective of the skilled disciple of the martial arts is to achieve victory without combat. Mm. Uh, interesting that people out there see karate people as, uh, you know, with this, you know, chopping and kicking and right, but to achieve victory without combat, as you say. Uh, the, the, the Chinese figures for martial arts, the Chinese actual writing means stop war. Stop war. It's all, wow. it's all, it's all very fascinating. That's right? amazing. I didn't yeah. know that. And um, what I, you know, people might appreciate this because it's very timely, but um, Catherine and I have been, you know, have, have binged the, the seasons of Copa Kai that have existed. Oh, yeah. Those of you know, based on the Karate Kid. And, you know, uh, I was actually the age of that character in the movie and doing karate at that time. Yes. So it was a big thing for me, even though it turns out, you know, Ralph Macchio is, you know, like eight years older than his character or something. But yeah, the guy who played the rival, Johnny, uh, whose name is uh, William Zabka, sure. who is actually, he's only a year or two older than I am, I think. But um, he didn't really know karate at the time, but he subsequently did uh, train karate, for, you know, and, and continues to train. And the the discipline he chose was Tang Sudo. And in one of the episodes in this most recent season, uh, you know, the Danny Daniel travels uh, to Okinawa and there's this voiceover and it's talk about how, you know, his master learned, et cetera, et cetera. And they mentioned two things in that voiceover, Tung Sudo and Huang Ki. Wow. And wow. I guarantee you it's because, of William Zab Zabka and his, you know, uh, immersion in Tungsudo and his appreciation for it. So I, I don't know. I thought that was cool. So well, it is cool. I, I, I know what it's like to be immersed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so here we are, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to, I won't promise that there won't be some third part of this interview in the future for some <laughs> reason or another, but I will say that uh, for now, we're going to keep it to two parts and we do have some time left because I say, so I don't know who's keeping. Oh yeah. Well, you know, we'll go to commercial. You're the boss. Um, yeah. 
um, fit in our time slot. I have no idea what any of this is, but um, let's just to, to kind of uh, get us, you know, through a point. So, you know, 77 karate, you have, you have two sons, you continue in the nightclubs. Uh, at, at some point in the eighties, there were times I remember we used to travel to New York here and there, which is where, if anybody knows, I've been living here for over 20 years now. That's been my home. So, you know, funny, funny. And, and my dad had been traveling here since the, at least the fifties. Right. Um, I lived and, there. For a while. And you're right. And lived there for a while. I actually found the Van Cortland uh, hotel. Hotel, hotel on 49th street. Uh, I found the building that it used to be in. It's not named that anymore, but there's a stencil on the side of the building that still says Van Cortland. Van Cortland. Cool. Um, but at, at any rate, uh, I think your traveling to New York was very influential to me. You, you did, I remember, uh, attempt to work with somebody in the eighties, maybe who was a writer or a something or other in New York on some song that never really came to fruition. Oh, well. I don't know. Uh, uh, there's something ironic about this whole thing. Back in 70, when I was working Pal Joey's, my agent back then, Billy Austin, wonderful guy, said to me and your mom, you guys should move to New York because that's where it's going to happen for you. Uh, there's the irony of it all. <laughs> you were just, again, you were not quite two. And here we, we talked about it. We thought it over and we said, I don't know. We don't want to, we didn't want to raise kids, a kid in New York. And and in 19, in 2000, who moves to New York? (laughs) Yeah. I raise all my kids here. Yeah. I know. It's pretty funny. With, with the baby, with, with, yeah. 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 With Katie, Katie's now, she's going to be 21 next month. That's right. That's that's astounding. That's right. And all of my children have been in music in one way or another, yeah. which is cool. But I'm trying to recall anybody from the 80s. And you mentioned, I, I off the top of my head, I can't quite. It, it was, it made an impression on me because you took us. And I remember going to some, oh, you know, sweet. Harry Finfer. Okay. His name was Harry Finfer. He was uh, an executive with Guiden Records. Oh, yeah. Jamie Guyden Records. Mm -hmm. And Guyden Records released my song Suddenly back in late 59. Uh, And I was doing some recordings for him is what it was. And he he knew a songwriter named Gladys Shelley up in New York. And then then you guys came. That's it. That's that's what it was. Yeah, you jogged my memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. You know. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and and so... Right. <laughs> That's where I, who knows, you know, what, how things, you know, end up in that way, but it's, yeah, that's connections. Yeah. Well, and it didn't stop there. You know, there were, there was a point, was it the late eighties or was it the early, it was early nineties, right. Where you released a country EP. Uh, yeah. Of original songs, countrified. Yeah. City Boy. Right. And well, what's that? No, yeah, that's right. Four songs, yeah, yeah, which are songs that you played often in your in your act and all of that, and um, you know, continued on with the clubs for many many years after yeah. that. Um, we keep getting you to you know see if we can get a show set up for you now so that we can get some fans back out there. We actually 
should know. Um, and one of the links I'm putting down there is a show that uh, he came and did last year that we did uh, on Facebook Live, which if you haven't seen it, please click the link and go see it. And also, hopefully, within the next six months, if things improve in the world, we're going to have him up again and do uh, another uh, virtual show. But this one's going to be by, you know, ticket only, uh, <laughs> as it should be. Uh, but, you know, because like uh, Tony Bennett, who's much older than you are, but as someone who has performed throughout his life and, you know, sad to hear what he's going through now. Yeah. But you are someone who, however your life has changed, however your circumstances have changed, your, you know, the reasons for working or not working, however, even your voice has, has, has you know, um, developed and all of that and uh, seasoned, you're still as good as you ever were. And so that feeling of, well, thankfully, you're still performing, at least in church and things like that. But that idea of connection, to me, is something you taught me years ago that uh, ironically comes from the Bible, which was the, the parable about the, you know, burying the talents in the, in the backyard or whatever. Right. right. Now that's just going to go to waste. And you, that's certainly, you know, yeah, we'd like, we'd like, you know, if the, whatever, whatever those talents in your back pocket to still come out, you know, in the future, but let's face it. That is not something you did. You never, ever let any of that go to waste. And that's a, that's a hell of a career. I, as I say, the most blessed person I know is sitting right here looking at you, talking to you with your mom to my left. So, you know, I have, again, a life of, of blessings, you know, no question about it. And still, to be able to perform for the Lord in church, my my biggest fear is not getting to heaven and not being in heaven with all of you. That's my biggest fear. And I, otherwise, I have no fears. Well, yeah. I Well, then you shouldn't have any, because I don't think that's an issue. Um, by any means, just considering what you've contributed you know, to the world and to the family as well. Uh, and, and I think is a wonderful place to, uh, end this conversation. It's, it's Sounded pretty, like an ending to me, man. Pretty uplifting, <laughs> right. You know, damn performers, you know, always <laughs> put buttons on things, God bless. Uh, but thank you for taking all this time. Um, you, you've always, you know, you've always helped me in the ways that you have in terms of, not just life, but career things. And uh, this is no exception. Thank you so much. And you keep up your good work. You and Catherine, we're looking forward to seeing and hearing you guys. Thank you. And you will. And, uh, and uh, thank all of you for, for listening and for watching and uh, for all the other stuff I always say, clicking and sharing and subscribing and, and for my Patreon supporters. Um, and for commenting, I'd really like to know what you think of all this. If you uh, if you know him and you have a message you want to send him, comment on this video and uh, and let me know, and I'll pass it on. Um, because as always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. Thanks to everyone. Connection. Thanks to Nikki Dimatio, and uh, I'll see you next time.
God bless you, man. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.